What does a big company like IBM have to do with entrepreneurship? Welcome to Venture Voice, show number 13 with Drew Clark. I'm your host, Greg Gallant. Drew is the co-founder of IBM's Venture Capital Group. While many people think of IBM as traditionally being a non-entrepreneurial big company, let's not forget that IBM was the launch pad for Microsoft. Steve Ballmer, the CEO of Microsoft, described working with IBM as riding the bear. IBM was so big that Microsoft felt like it had to do as it was told by Big Blue. How things have changed. IBM says it's now here to help, while Microsoft has gained a reputation of being hard to work with in some circles. Drew, a 20-year IBM veteran, is leveraging open source software and IBM's connections to help startup companies grow big. He has an announcement to make about IBM's own connections in the venture capital world and what it means for you entrepreneurs. Enjoy. Drew, welcome to Venture Voice. I'm delighted to be here today. How did you come to work at IBM? Well, let's see, I have to go back a couple of decades, actually. I came to IBM in 1982, and I was a developer back then. I guess we called them programmers, and basically helped IBM develop some of its first advanced compilers in languages like Fortran and COBOL, and later on into some of the vector languages. Come to IBM uh, kind of from a technology development background, and kind of advanced through a number of jobs in development side. Found that I was a better marketeer than a developer, and so went over into product and corporate marketing, and then a number of uh, headquarters assignments and found myself running an operation for a cross-corporate operation actually as the search czar for IBM. I was responsible for all the search technology kind of a, about a decade ahead of our time actually. Right now that would be a very interesting job. Ten years ago we were just discovering the web, just discovering that unstructured information was important and so back then there wasn't a lot of demand for that and so I had a lot of fun. We put together some great products and solutions but wasn't a lot of market pull for that then. I then moved over into running IBM's knowledge management business and worked for a time for Lotus, one of our subsidiaries. And in the fall of 2000, about five years ago to the month, we formed the Venture Capital Group and been an exciting ride ever since. And you know, the, the whole notion of the Venture Group really is a reflection of, of IBM's focus on entrepreneurs. The, the feeling at the time was that we don't really have the right kind of presence in Silicon Valley where a lot of entrepreneurship, of course, is well known. And we wanted to put together a team that could help better connect IBM to where a lot of, of innovation was taking place, where a lot of entrepreneurs were scrambling to put new startups together, where VCs were in a feeding frenzy to put money to work. And so this group kind of was spun out of that mandate. And it really kind of builds on IBM's history with entrepreneurs. I mean, we spent a lot of time, at least in my, during my career, in working with developers. We understand fully that it's literally a battle for the hearts and minds of the best developers when it comes to our platforms and trying to attract the best talent to uh, to our strategic direction. So we've spent a lot of time and effort trying to cultivate that, and we'll talk more about that in a, in a few minutes when we get into our developer works and partnership programs. But bottom line is that you know IBM's always been committed to working with, with startups. It's only in the last five years or so, though, that we've put a particular emphasis there with regard to some of the things that, that we're going to talk about today. Does give you a little bit better idea of, of, of kind of where I've come from and, and how we got started? Yeah, definitely. 
as we start to think about the venture capital group as a, an important integral part of IBM, you can kind of see why we are out here in Silicon Valley. And I probably should say, you know, we're here in Menlo Park, California, which is kind of the center of mass for venture capital, not just in this country, but in the world. And I mean, this is really where as much as 80, 80 some percent of the total venture capital spend happens. So certainly it's the right place for us here, for our team. But we've got a global mission. And our global mission for IBM is to really identify, discover, identify, and otherwise support entrepreneurs all over the world. And so we've got a virtual team that extends to Europe, into Asia, across Asia, places like Australia, and across North America as well. So we've got a great team in place to help us work with local basis innovators, you know, who are doing great things wherever they live. So it's not just a Silicon Valley focus, but that's just sort of our starting point. IBM has a long history, and looking back at that history, the most famous example I can think of as an entrepreneur who's worked with you guys is Bill Gates, who of course built his empire starting with selling software to IBM machines. Looking back at IBM's history with working with entrepreneurs, what are some of the takeaways and how has that influenced your current thinking to how you approach working with entrepreneurs? That's kind of an interesting example there. We're in a very different period than we were back in the the, uh, mid to late 80s when a lot of that was going on. I can remember being at some of those meetings, actually, with Bill and with Jim Canavino and some of our team. I mean, this is, Greg, this is going back a long way. But uh, those were pretty exciting times. But I'd put these times up against those times any day. I mean, there's a lot of exciting things going on now. In fact, you can kind of look at what's happening now and find some interesting parallels with the rise of startups like Google and some of the exciting things we're seeing coming out of China like Shonda Interactive and Baidu. I mean, there's a lot of very innovative things happening now that I think stand up well against, you know, what was going on back in the 80s. But if you think about it, you know, the whole software, if we're talking about software for a minute, the whole software marketplace has evolved and matured drastically in these last 20-some years and really doesn't resemble the way things were, kind of the Wild West we saw back in the mid-80s. You know, we've got some important foundational elements that have emerged, you know, where we're looking at today, you know, a whole raft of open standards that that have really revolutionized the way software is put together these days. Uh, We didn't have those back then. Back then, you took a huge risk if you were a startup or any kind of company in trying to put together, you know, a company and a a software offering. You know, you rolled the dice with whether or not it was going to be any kind of sustainable value. And of course, customers reacted the same way. You know, they're not going to invest in an investment stream into technology if there's not any kind of a, a reassurance that it's built against something that has some lasting value. So what we found certainly coming through the 90s was a lot of false starts, a lot of startups coming and coming and going. And and we think a, a great deal of the reason was because there weren't foundational standards that really represented kind of the important building blocks for a lot of new innovation. And so what we're finding today, certainly in the last five or six years, is that open standards, and we're talking about things like the web, we're talking, you know, XML, HTML, WSDL, standards like that, even things like, like Java represent important bedrock in which software innovation really flourishes. And so I think we're seeing a huge uptick in innovation around the world. And, and maybe that that's an important point is that a lot of the innovation took place principally in the U.S. because we didn't have these global standards either. And we didn't have ways for other countries, developers in other countries to participate because they didn't have the ability to reach out to the web and other kinds of foundational elements to build on. So so I think that now it's a much better time for startups to work with IBM, for startups to work with each other. There's a much better ecosystem that's developed in the last few years around open standard and networks 
that's really conducive to putting things together in a way that, most importantly, customers are going to find comfortable. And, you know, the customers are, are, the, are the last word here. If they don't feel comfortable in making an investment in the software, then, then no one's going to benefit. So I guess you can tell that, you know, we, we strongly believe that open standards is really the biggest single success factor. And, you know, if I think about IBM's relationship with entrepreneurs, you know, it really begins and ends with the thought of building against these important standards because otherwise we're talking about a very niche thing. We're talking about something that may appeal to a very small set of customers. But if we take a look at our Fortune 100, Fortune 500 customer set, one of the very first questions they're going to ask when we introduce them to a startup that we'd like to participate with in, in a solution that we're offering, you know, they're going to ask, so are they building against, you know, XYZ standard? Have they built on this? If we can't answer affirmatively, then, then the conversation probably ends right there. So one of the pieces of advice I can give entrepreneurs is to educate yourself about the important standard in your industry or in the technology space that you're that you're operating in and make sure that those are the foundational elements in what you build. That sounds very powerful, and now it seems that some of my other interviewees, like Joe Krauss, was saying it's just a great time to start a business now. In technology, you can just throw together a company for much, much less money than you could even 10 years ago because of open source. Oh, absolutely. There's so many elements that you can leverage today that you had to go build 10 years ago. Think about all the what we call scaffolding that you'd have to put together to demonstrate, you know, your particular business value. Pre-web, you have to assemble, you know, you know, all of those elements. You'd have to cobble together, you know, millions of dollars worth of foundational work just to be able to show off the piece of the space that, that your company does particularly well. You couldn't show any kind of collaboration or, or, or network-based communication unless you navigated the intricacies of networks like SNA. Uh, had to throw that at one acronym in at least. The world was very complex, and for a startup to kind of demonstrate value there was pretty daunting. And so I think today, with all of this great infrastructure represented by things like the web and, and easy-to-use languages like Perl and PHP and Python and um, all of the standard web protocols, it's pretty straightforward to put together a baseline upon which you can base you know, your particular secret sauce. And so we think this is an excellent time to be able to leverage all of that and leave all that blocking and tackling to the platform provider so that you as a startup can focus on the unique business value that you're trying to bring across. So if it's so cheap and so easy, why does an entrepreneur need to work with such a big company like IBM? Ah, well, the technology piece, you're familiar with the analogy about the iceberg, you know, how you can see the 20% of it that's above the surface, but it's the 80% you can't see that's going to get your, it's going to sink your ship. The technology, in our opinion, is probably that 20%. That's the easy part. The really difficult part of being a successful business is meeting and winning over customers. It's making a decent revenue on the sale of your product. It's aligning yourself with the right partners as you go to market. It's, it's picking the right alliances. It's, I could go on and on and on. Business life is very difficult. Technology is relatively easy. And I think the lesson here is that, and, and certainly when you talk to VCs, and we're part of the whole VC community ourselves, but when you, when you talk to VCs, you know, they're looking for things like the best management team, you know, leadership in the people. They're looking for business savvy. Technology is not, is not out front. It's not in the top two or three items in their list. Uh, there's a lot of technology out there. They're looking for that sense of entrepreneurial spirit and, and that vision and all of these, some of them intangibles that are important. You know, IBM feels the same way. You know, we're, we're not out there, you know, looking for precisely the same things as a VC, 
But we're interested in understanding where's the business value of what you're producing as a company and what's your plan to be able to take it to market. And that's where IBM comes in, really, as a company. We can come in and help mentor a young team. We can help take you to market through a variety of industry-based solutions. We have our huge global services unit, which can come in and help build your particular component into a multifaceted solution that we take to market together. There are all kinds of go-to-market opportunities with IBM. I didn't mean to discount the technology side, though. I mean, I was just trying to kind of make that comparison. On the technology side, IBM offers a wealth of programs to help the developer community. I don't know if you've been out to developerworks.com, but that's year in and year out, judge the best developer resource in the business. And so that's a community. That's a zone community as we call it. Uh, there are a series of zones that basically let you identify with a particular community that you're working with. You've got a Java community, an XML community, an open standards community. It gets pretty arcane, actually, with all of the depth of the various communities that are there. I think they number in the hundreds, if not thousands, of different communities you can join and participate in. In addition to lots and lots of free code and resources, we've got a very cool site we call AlphaWorks, which your listeners might be familiar with. We can go out to AlphaWorks, and it's right off the IBM home page. You can go up to IBM.com and, and just type in AlphaWorks and you'll get to a site where we offer the best cutting edge prototypes and alpha code out of our research labs. And this is really cool stuff. So we'll have the first pure XML parser out there. We've got voice recognition software. We've got amazing prototypes of all kinds of different code. And it's code. It's not just white papers and descriptions. There's actual code out there. So a lot of bottom line, lots of tools, lots of code, lots of encouragement for developers out there from, from a technology point of view. And we think that that balanced with the, the business mentoring and ultimately the go-to-market value that we can bring startups is really an unbeatable combination. Can you give me the name of one company you're working with right now uh, to help out and what specifically you're doing for them? Oh, sure. There's lots of examples for where to start. <laughs> I'll start in China. How about that? Throw your ringer there. You know, I mentioned that we have this global mission, and so we're working with, with companies all over the world. There's a company called Yipay, Y-E-E-P-A-Y, and they're out of Beijing, China. One of the challenges, just to kind of give you the context here, you know, what the challenge was and what we're doing. The challenge was collection. The challenge in China is not that there aren't people eager to buy your service. Say you're offering, you know, ringtone downloading and you're offering some wireless video previews on your cell phone, whatever. The problem is collecting that payment because there really aren't good micropayment systems in China. Not that we have the best here in the U.S. either. You know, we've kind of worked on it. We've got things like PayPal and we have regular credit cards. They don't have that example in China. In fact, they don't have that in the other emerging geographies either. And so a company like ePay has developed a very sophisticated but easy-to-use micropayment system that uh, is really revolutionizing e-commerce in China. And so they approached IBM very early on. We provided them with hardware, software, go-to-market assistance, and now IBM and ePay together are going to market with a co-branded system to deliver this micropayment. And everybody, because anybody in China, is embedding this into their apps so that they've got a reliable way to bill and collect payment for services. It's a very cool example. And then in this country, of course, I mean, there's, there's a number of companies. I could give you a company like Laszlo Systems. Many of your listeners who are engaged in uh, open source know Laszlo. They have very cool 
flash-based graphical rendering systems for building prototype systems or even industrial strength portals. You know, Lazo is really fun to use and easy to use all at the same time. You know, we worked with them to help port them over to, to IBM platforms to make them available to a wider variety of potential end users and their, their revenues have gone through the roof since we've done that. There's just too many examples to start. I can go on and on. Chances are, if it's a top-tier venture-backed startup, uh, we worked with them. And by working, I mean everything from you know coaching and mentoring kind of thing to uh, free of charge, porting their code, say, onto a, uh, a Linux-based environment, helping them uh, get to market with the, uh, introducing them to our, our various partner channels. I mean, there's just a range of services that we can offer to help get an entrepreneur off the ground. And, and maybe the best way to kind of explain that is, is to talk about some news we had last week. We announced a brand new initiative to help developers basically build skills around open standards so they can launch they can launch these companies on a global basis more easily. IBM's had these so-called innovation centers for a number of years now, and they become so popular that we kind of burst the steam, so to speak. And so we've had to kind of think about how do we virtualize this capability so that we can make this available to so many additional developers who can take advantage of this. And so what we're, we're talking about then is a way to come in on a virtual basis, in other words, an on-demand kind of thing. You, you basically you register with the site. It's free of charge. You get a log on. You log in. We've got over 40 different courses aimed particularly at developers from things like front-end coding with things like Laszlo, as a matter of fact, courses on open standards, working with Java, all kinds of different uh, topics. And they're basically aimed at helping developers kind of get a leg up and get going. We'll also work with developers. You can essentially upload your app directly to the site and open up your own kind of private incubator and when work on your product actually uh, on our virtual site you know we provide storage and capabilities for you there ISVs essentially uh, startups can participate in virtual workshops that that help you figure out how to port from one technology to another how to access things like advanced portal technology that sort of thing and this is a worldwide offer. This is not something that's just in a place like Silicon Valley or Boston, but we offer these all over the world. That's something that I think is particularly interesting, I would think, to early-stage developers who are trying to kind of figure out, how do I navigate global markets? How can I build a capability you know, where I am and then be able to address a market in China? Or if I'm in China, how do I address the U.S. market? How can I navigate all of the chaos around standards and interoperability and partnerships and all those kinds of things. So that's one thing that we announced last week. So far, based on the feedback we've gotten, it's been a big hit. You're giving these great resources to these fledgling companies and they're starting to take off and do well. How is IBM profiting from it? Are you guys just looking to keep selling these guys a whole bunch of stuff or are you taking equity stakes in these companies? That's a great question. So, you know, just jumping back to, you know, the venture capital group, which is where I currently operate out of, the name is a little bit of a misnomer because we don't have a venture capital fund. We're not investing directly like so many of our professional venture capital colleagues. And so our philosophy is that our expertise and the value added that we can bring to companies on kind of the technology go-to-market side far exceeds the few million dollars that we could put in on the equity side, on the venture side. And so we've decided to team up with rather than compete with our venture partners. And it works a lot better 
So we'll go and work with an Excel or a Walden International or a Draper Fisher Derivative, to name three of the VCs we work with, and they'll call us, perhaps even in advance of making an investment, and they'll say, we're thinking about investing in Company X. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, the, the technology here? Can you maybe put us in touch with a researcher who's been in that field or, or somebody who's you know, expert in that area? Or can you tell us from a marketing point of view whether you think this is something that IBM could envision embedding into one of its solutions? And you know, we kind of help them in their due diligence process so they don't invest in something that perhaps is a mistake. After they've made investments, then we work with them to help make their company successful. So you can kind of think of us on the front end as well as on the back end of VC investment process. A VC will call us and say, we just invested in company X and we would like you to introduce us to the appropriate part of IBM who can help integrate them into something of value to IBM's customers. And so very often we'll we'll take a look at it and kind of figure out where it fits, what unit it, it lines up with, whether it's something that's more of a technology focus with one of our brands, such as a WebSphere or DB2, or maybe it's something that complements one of our consultants solutions and we'll line it up there or maybe it's something that fits in and and would would help differentiate one of our industry-based solutions you know we cover over 17 industries and so you know maybe it's something that fits into a banking or financial services or something that will help light up our uh, life sciences offerings and you know whatever so the idea is that we'll do some triage with the company with a startup and figure out where they best fit and then we'll make the introductions and help get that company going so from a VC's point of view they see tremendous value in IBM helping them make their company successful. I mean, if you think about it, a VC wakes up every morning thinking, you know, how am I going to make my new investment successful so that I can then return a decent amount back to my limited partners? This is how they, they are measured and how they operate their business. And so we're a valuable strategic partner for them in helping make that happen. These days, these companies are well-funded. They've got all the operating capital they need. What they need is a strategic partner to help make the company successful, and that's really what we do here. Just to give you an idea of, of the magnitude of our operation here, in the last 18 months alone, we've pushed over 850 startups through our venture program and onto the IBM Partnership Program. So we're not talking ones and twos here. We're talking about operating at scale. We're talking about really turning over every rock and looking around every hill for the best and brightest startups and aggressively moving them into our various channels. And so, so again, this is not something that we casually take on, but working with over 800 VCs around the world, World, naturally, we uncover a lot of quality startups. And, you know, just like VCs, though, we're discriminating. We're not going to just place everyone there. But the best we'll find that IBM is very anxious to bring them into our partnership channels and into our solutions. In the long run, it's very easy to measure how successful a venture capital fund is. Their investors can just look at how each one of the companies they invested in did and, you know, how many dollars they made and what kind of return on investment they gave. How is IBM monitoring your venture group's success and what kind of metric do they measure you guys by? So the number I just gave you, the 850 companies coming through, that's one measure. And not so much the number, but the quality of the companies. Put this in context, you have to kind of think about why does IBM value partners so much? And and the reason is it may be somewhat surprising to your, to your listeners. Back in about 1999, we got completely out of the application business. It didn't make sense to us, we felt, to compete with the very customers we wanted to serve. 
And so from our point of view, strategically thinking about the situation, about the industry and, and how we were going to operate for the next decade or so, we felt it was much more important for us to supply the infrastructure, middleware, the, the plumbing components, the services around us. It's much more important for us to supply that than it is to attempt to define business value around applications and then make our own customers feel like we're, we're competing with them on their turf. And I don't have to tell you that there are many examples in our industry of companies who do that. And they're forever trying to explain to their customers every move they make. They're held under great suspicion in many cases that the next move they make is going to somehow swallow up, you know, a brand new company. The VCs get very nervous actually working with the people in our industry who maybe in their next move will be putting millions of dollars of recent venture investment into disuse by coming out with, with an offering of their own. And so, you know, that model just plain doesn't work for IBM. We feel like it's much more important for us to play the prime supporting role in helping provide the foundational elements for applications, application vendors, for what we call ISVs, independent software vendors in the industry, to build on top of, and then services to help integrate those companies into a customer's business. So given that context, then, it's not surprising that we're hungry for partners. <laughs> I mean, there's just a, no other way to talk about it is that we are just plain hungry for partners. And it's important for us then to be able to identify the best and brightest new partners and develop a pipeline of new partners that come into our partnership program because it's those partners then that we then embed into these solutions. Fortune 1000 customers today don't buy point product. They buy solutions. And a solution really is defined roughly as one part hardware, one part software, one part services. And that software then is made up of infrastructure or foundational components and what we call applications. Since we're not in the app business, then we have to partner for this app to be able to offer complete solutions. So naturally, we need to keep that pipeline stoke. It's not hard to then go from that to your question. I know I took five minutes to get there, <laughs> but since you asked, it's not hard to take the leap into our measurement, which is what are the, how, how effective is the venture group in bringing in to our partner networks the highest quality partners? I mean, that's what we do. And it's not just partners, it's also acquisitions. It, it turns out that in many cases, the partnership is so important to us that we want to kind of turn up the volume even higher and we want we feel it's important to make them actually a part of IBM Corporation. And so at that point, the venture group is, is in a kind of a different mode. We're wearing a different hat. We're actually looking at it from a from the due diligence point of view, uh, working with our business unit who indicated to us that they want to go and make an acquisition. We'll help develop a short list of candidates for them. So we'll go back to a VC and say, you know, where is company Z in its life cycle? You know, are, are they getting ready to think about an IPO or are they thinking about that they want to be acquired? You know, what? where are they here? And that'll give us a little bit of insight perhaps into who we should be looking at and we can pass that along to our business units. And so, again, the quality of those deals we can put together is also a measurement for us. So most of it is then strategic value to the IBM company is how we're measured versus, you know, equity investment or profit and loss based on investment. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. It's really a measure of quality of what we do rather than particular financial measurement. But of course, one could think about financial implications. You know, of this, you only have to look at those 850 companies that passed through or the fact that five out of the six most recent software acquisitions came through our group. And you can kind of put a dollar amount on that. So it's not hard. It's not much of a stretch then to, to also take a look at what was the revenue impact of our team. It's just that we, we choose not to dwell on that. We'd rather look at the, the quality of what we do. How many people work in the venture group specifically? 
we like to say just the right number. <laughs> well, we have fairly small but nimble team in Menlo Park. It's essentially a hand-picked set of executives who, like myself, have a, a variety of experiences around IBM and are fairly well-versed in where the opportunities are at IBM. We've been there long enough to have built up some credibility with our business unit. And so we're able to kind of go out and, and approach Steve Mills, who was the senior vice president and head of our software business, and say, you know, Steve, we've got a company you need to look at, and that sort of thing. So, you know, in, in rough terms, maybe we're, maybe we're 25 as a core. And then we've got a virtual team around the world that, again, helps us discover and otherwise identify promising startups in other regions. So we've got a team that's in the UK. There's the people in Paris. We've got people in, in Moscow. We've got people in just going around the world here people in, in Singapore, Korea, and China. We're in a lot of places. And so we essentially have a global scope and reach that, that we think is unrivaled. And we're able to work with startups just about anywhere in the world on the same basis. That helps me because I don't have to go out and travel every month. We can kind of operate from Menlo Park in a virtual mode and, and make a lot of things happen with our local teams on the ground in those areas actually doing a lot of the work. So let's say you have 25 people working there, you've got 850 startups, that means each person that you have there has to worry about 34 companies. The average VC, you know, they say won't get involved with more than three or four or five. How do you manage that? Think about the bigger number for a second. There are tens of thousands of startups worldwide. Think about each venture partner at a firm looks at hundreds of business plans you know, a year. So the numbers are really daunting. And by working with the top tier VCs around the world, we kind of keep that number to kind of a manageable amount. And so the first filter, if you will, is that we've got an organization that helps us filter and select. So the VCs themselves, because they're discriminating and, and we're kind of working closely with them, help us keep that number down to manageable numbers, you know, in the hundreds at least. We've also got another part of our team which kind of works day-to-day -day with the startups and with the VCs that not necessarily in our 25. And so there's more there than, than, than it might appear. And so we have a whole sister organization called our Developer Work and Partner World, which helps us every day working with these companies. And so think about it as a core team, a small team of, of a couple of dozen, but, but magnified by a much larger set of people who are skilled at working with startups, in particular with developers developers that really augments our small team. So it's not like you know each partner on our team has assigned some number here. We've got a more sophisticated way to approach that. All the buzz now is about how Google is the new Microsoft, that they're the ones who are arrogant and work on their own path and aren't too friendly to startups. If you were advising you know, one of these young startups, they've came to you, you're one of their mentors, and they're asking, who else here in the Valley should I be working with to bring out my product? Would you recommend any of these other big companies, Google, Yahoo, Microsoft, AOL? Yeah, I saw that article by Rivlin in the Times last week, and pretty scary when you look at it on, on his terms, the way, he, the way he describes this, and some of the quotes from the VCs, and, you know, uh, in, in some ways, I, mean, I live out here, and I see the effect of Google every day in terms of raising the salaries for developers. It's becoming harder to get some of the top people because Google is, is famous for fighting for them. It's also, in some ways, an echo of, of predatory behavior of the sort that Microsoft made famous in terms of uh, you're afraid they're going 
going to swallow companies whole, and therefore you might hesitate before investing there. So you know, you're in this position where they've evolved a pretty powerful entity, and that doesn't mean, however, that a young company wouldn't find a way to work with them. Uh, we're certainly working with all those companies you mentioned, and of course we're many times a startup size. One way to think about this might be to think about a startup working with us and we can help connect the dots to some of these other companies because IBM is partners with people like, like Amazon and Yahoo and Google and others, and, and we've got great relationships with many of them. One way to think about this is IBM kind of as a broker. If there is technology or business value that we think can help fuel one of those companies, then we can help a startup make that connection. So, you know, maybe there's a way for us to help even in that equation. Other than that, I think that there are certain areas of technology where you've got a high hill to climb, let's say, if you're creating a standalone software business because IBM and Microsoft and Sun and others pretty much dominate, for example, core middleware and even into web services now. And so if I was thinking about starting a company in those spaces, then Unless I've got something that they're missing or they've overlooked, then it's going to be difficult to convince a top customer to invest in your company when something else, something similar is being offered by one of those. I would say my advice is to look for niches, to look for vertical applications for areas that these other companies we've just mentioned need to have to complete their stack. And so in the case of IBM, thinking about the 17 industries that we serve, there's an awful lot of great technology there that I'd be looking toward that we could bring to bear in areas like sciences and banking and financial services, e-government, homeland security. I could, I could list a whole number of very active areas where the opportunity for partnership is really good on a go-to-market basis. And so if I was a startup, I wouldn't necessarily be looking for the, the Microsofts and Suns and Cisco's or even the Googles and Yahoo's. I'd be thinking about what are customers waking up and dealing with every day? Where are their pain points? Where do they need help? And then which of those players in particular, IBM, of course, can I partner with to help bring my solution to their pain to the market? And, and that's the way I would approach it. Let's talk about the international part of international business machines. As you mentioned, you guys are operating all over the world. What single region are you spending most of the time thinking about and do you see the most opportunity in? I mentioned before, we kind of have a global mission, so we're, we're looking at it not bounded much at all, really. I'd say of the regions that, that are in focus right now, certainly the, the four BRIC, so-called BRIC countries after the Goldman Sachs report, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, are a prime focus for us. And so I'd say those are where innovation is just exploding. And of course, you know, a lot of that's being fueled by the emergence of open standards, in particular, you know, open source software. Brazil is going crazy over open source software now and, and it's being mandated for every everything the government builds. Same thing is happening in China. In fact, they're going so crazy they're defining their own version of Linux to help fuel the next generation of their systems. Similar things are happening in, in other countries. You know, those are four reasons that, that we care about. And of course the main reason is because growth in those regions. Those regions experienced a 25% growth rate last year, which is an amazing number when you think about the growth of spend in a country like the US or, or, or even similar regions. And so, you know, naturally that's very attractive to IBM. But it's also attractive from a, a purely innovation standpoint. When you think about things like online gaming, wireless broadband services, you're not going to find that cutting-edge innovation necessarily in this country, although there are some cool things going on. You're going to find that in places like Seoul, South Korea, or in Shanghai, China. We have to go where the innovation is. That's really fueling where we go next. So when you see IBM in China, we're not there just because there are 180 million people 
carrying cell phones around. It was a great opportunity to sell into the country. It's, it's because there are 180 million people in that country with cell phones that a market has emerged around wireless and attracted investors to invest into innovation around wireless broadband services. And so innovation follows the market. If there's a market there, then there's going to be money, and then money is going to fuel innovation. And so that's what's interesting about those regions is that we're seeing a lots of venture-backed innovation take place, and that's creating a great deal of excitement about lots of new goods and services that we're anxious to then take to our customers. I talked about one of the, the news items we had last week, and that was the virtual mentoring centers, the virtual innovation center. I also want to talk about the Venture Capital Advisory Council. You know, it goes in part to a question you asked a little while back, you know, how can I be able to be effective with the venture community? How do we measure this? And when you talk about uh, the numbers, the sheer numbers out there, 800-some VCs, and if you think about the deal flow coming through those 800, we're talking thousands and thousands of companies. And we're talking about a relatively modest number of us here at Menlo Park. And so if you do the math, you realize that in order for us to operate at scale, we're going to need to have a more compact and focused conversation with a smaller group of VCs. That's not to say that we're, we're not going to work with the balance of the 800, but we determined that we could be more effective in working with VCs and they with us. If we identified kind of a, a guiding council made up of top VCs around the world and focused on a particular agenda. And so we announced last week the formation of the IBM Venture Capital Advisory Council. And this is a hand-picked group of initially seven VCs, probably adding more as IBM's agenda grows. We'll probably bring more into the loop. But this is an opportunity for IBM to get much closer to a very influential group of VCs and they to us. And the VCs are constantly telling us that they want better access to IBM decision makers, the people in the various units who make the build-buy decisions and make the, the go-to-market decisions around new companies, bringing them into the partnership channels. And so this is a great opportunity for us to have a closer, more intimate dialogue with them and their companies. I mean, this is all about startups here. So the idea is by focusing around a smaller number, you probably get a lot more done in terms of IBM helping to get their companies to the market, make them successful, and for IBM to be able to help influence where they're placing their bet and be able to understand better what they're thinking as they make investments into a technology spaces. It's really a nice mutual value proposition there. To the entrepreneurs listening out there, if they think they need some of your resources and they want to be that 851st startup that you're working with, how should they get in touch with you and how do they pitch themselves? Well, there are several ways. Obviously, if you're a privileged enough to be a VC-backed startup, then go through your VC partner and reach us directly. And we've got quite a network of VC colleagues, and so it's not a problem there. Of course, if you are a VC-backed startup, you probably don't need what I just told you. You, you know that already. For for most of the people listening, then there, there's lots of other easy ways. I guess the, the best way is, is to come out to one of several websites. Come out to the IBM Developer Works uh, website right off of IBM.com. That's one effective way to kind of get into and access what we're doing. Uh, there are links from there to many, many other resources around IBM. Another way is if you're interested, if you're already up and running, you've got a product and you want to become an IBM partner, you want to kind of get into that partner network and tap the partnership resources, then I would just go out to www.ibm.com slash partnerworld and you'll get plugged into that whole partnership community 
Uh, it's painless. I've done it. It takes five, ten minutes, and you can sign up as an IBM business partner. And then from there, you're on our radar. And then we can take you into our partnership pyramid and help you move up through the ranks, maybe become a, an SAP or a Siebel someday. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the show, Drew. Hey, it's been my pleasure. It's been fun. Hopefully this show gives you some food for thought on working with international business machines for your next venture. If you want to follow up on Drew's pitch from the show, be sure to check out our website, VentureVoice.com, where you can grab show notes and all the links that Drew mentioned. Also on our site, you can leave comments or email us thoughts at talk at VentureVoice.com. We have gotten lots of great feedback lately, and that's really going to shape the direction we go in. Till next time.